0: I'm looking forward to studying this book of Ephesians with all of you. Let's begin by reading the brief and typical opening to this book. It's in the very first two verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice 3 obvious things. First, the sender. The sender of this letter is Paul. Paul is Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he did not appoint himself to this office. He was an authoritative messenger who was appointed by God himself. Second, the recipients of this letter are the saints who are in Ephesus. And the word saints simply means holy ones. It means set-apart ones. But again, not ones made holy by man or men. These were ones made holy by God. That is, set-apart by God. The word saints in the New Testament is just another word for Christians. So they were saints in Ephesus who were faithful to the Lord Jesus like you Christians are the saints in Roseville who are faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then third, here is Paul's greeting. And his greeting is the same in every one of his letters. He basically says what he says here in Ephesians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's overarching wish for them is that they would receive grace and peace from God their Father and Jesus Christ their Lord. And that is Paul's opening. That is the brief prologue to his letter. And with that out of the way, he gets right into the most packed and powerful sentence he ever wrote. The next 12 verses, verses 3 through 14, in the original Greek were one long sentence. He goes under, he doesn't come up for air. One long sentence. And these words are an overwhelming description of our great God and His great love for us. And so before we read this thoughtfully together, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our prayer is Paul's prayer, that through our study of this word we would receive grace and peace from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 917. The next verse, verse 3, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To bless God is different than God blessing us. To bless God is to give him something, just like when God blesses us, it's to give us something. But what we give God is very different than what God gives us. To bless God is to give him praise. So this verse could read like this. Praise be. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now what follows from that verse in verses 4 through 14, this massive sentence, is a description of what those spiritual blessings are. Namely, our salvation. We have nothing from God apart from our salvation and we have everything because of it. So all spiritual blessings, that is blessings that come to us from God, from His Spirit, all of them are contained in our salvation. And that's what these verses are about. You're going to see that Paul has organized this sentence, he's methodical in this sentence, he's organized it into three parts, according to the three persons of the Trinity. Our God is one God who exists eternally in three persons. That is one of the things that makes our great God great. He is one God, and yet he is also three persons. And this great God, who is one God in three persons, saves us by each of those members of the Trinity playing a vital role in our salvation. So rather than Paul just saying, thank God and praise God for what God has done to save us, he's going to go through in this sentence and say, this is what God the Father has done, this is what God the Son has done, and this is what God the Spirit has done. So here those three parts are. I'll give them to you now. They'll be the headings that we'll work under in this sermon. Our salvation is planned by God the Father. Or our salvation is predestined by God the Father. Second, our salvation is purchased by God the Son. Our salvation is purchased by God the Son. And third... Our salvation is preserved, or protected, by God the Spirit. So let's start where Paul starts. And let's see together in verses 3 through 6 that our salvation is planned. with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the first part of this sentence where Paul gives us the work of God the Father in our salvation. And just in those few verses, you can see that we could spend weeks talking about that. Some of you, when Pastor Tom was reading the sermon text, thought to yourself, how are we going to even cover that in one Sunday morning. There is so much in these verses, and normally you would. You'd parse this out, you'd take your time, and you'd go a few words at a time. You could on this one sentence, you really could easily spend a year's worth of sermons unpacking what is here. But again, Paul wrote this in one sentence, So I think it's important that we study it as one sentence, that we we get the overwhelming feeling that Paul wants us to have. You can take your time this week, and you can read over it, and you can study it, and you can think about it, and I would encourage you to do that. But this morning, our goal is that we would be overwhelmed by our great God, And his great love for us. So this first part. Just about God the Father. Verse 4. God the Father chose us. He chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Christians. Those here who are faithful in Christ Jesus like those were in Ephesus, God chose you. God chose you to be holy and blameless. And when did God decide this? Before the foundations of the world. Verses 4 and 5, God the Father predestined us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christians, before you were born, before the foundation of the world, God decided to adopt you into his family. That means you were not born into this family. You were chosen into this family. And God chose to adopt you, Christian, into this family before the foundation of the world. He did not wait to get to know you. He knew you and chose you for adoption before the foundation of the world. Uh, These words, words like chose and predestined, they are describing the biblical doctrine of election, another word that is used several places in the New Testament, this word election. It is clear as you read the Bible that God chooses, that God predestines, and that God elects. All words used to describe the same thing. He chooses a people for salvation. Another text is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That God chooses people or that God predestines people has actually never been something that is in dispute among Christians. Again, the words are clear in Scripture. What people have disagreed over is the basis of that choice. That God chooses is clear, but what is the basis for that choice? In other words, how does God choose whom he will save? And there are basically two positions. Number one, God chooses us for salvation because we have chosen him. We are saved, that is we are chosen, we are elected based on foreseen faith. Therefore, your choice and my choice, it is the foundational choice and God's election, it is conditional it is conditioned upon our belief. And let me quote you from one Arminian scholar who writes God purposes to save particular persons and to damn others. And that decree rests upon the foreknowledge of God, by which he has known from eternity which persons should believe and which should persevere through subsequent grace and also who should not believe and persevere. So the idea is the way that God chooses whom he will save is that he looks down in the beginning, that God looks down the tunnel of time, and he sees who would believe the gospel and who would persevere in that belief of the gospel, and he elects them for salvation. This is not what Paul is teaching here. This is not what the Bible teaches. It is a philosophical attempt to explain God's election and push away certain problems we might have with it. The major problem with this view, and there are many, The major problem with this view of election is that the scriptures teach us that man is totally depraved and he is unable to choose God. The natural man, apart from God's grace, will never choose Jesus. We all are like the men described in Job 21, verse 14. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? R.C. Sproul wrote, If the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners, we would despair of all hope that anyone would be saved. The reality is if God in the beginning were to look down the tunnel of time, he would see no one submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the other position. It is the biblical position that is described in our text today. God chooses us For salvation and changes our heart that we freely choose Him. We are saved, that is, chosen, elected, not based on foreseen faith. We are saved based on God's sovereign choice. Therefore, God's choice is foundational. Therefore, God's election, it is unconditional, which is why in Acts 13, 48, it said, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and it says that many then believed, and do you remember how it describes the many who believed? It says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Who are those who had been appointed to eternal life? They are those who had been appointed to eternal life before the foundation of the world. As Paul describes it here in our text today. God the Father appoints us to salvation, which at some point leads to a question that Paul addresses here in Ephesians. And that question is, why did God choose us? Why did God choose us? Why did God predestine us? And that why question could have at least a a couple different meanings. Why or for what reason did God choose us or why? For what purpose did God choose us? Those are both good questions. And Paul speaks to each of them. First, for what reason did God choose us? Verses 4 and 5. Here if you can hear the answer. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I see two things. What is the reason God chose you for salvation? The first answer he gives is love. In love, he predestined us. This is certainly consistent with the testimony of Scripture. God chose to save us because of his great love for us, which is overwhelming for the humble man or woman. If you're not humble, maybe you're not overwhelmed by that, and you're not surprised that God loves you. But if you have a degree of humility then you are overwhelmed by the idea that God has chosen to love you. And that is the right, humble question to ask, by the way. Why would God love me? Not why is this bad thing happening to me? Which we're all guilty of asking at times. The better question is, Why has God saved me? And why does God love me? Why has God put me in this church? Why has God put me in this family? Why has God put me in this nation? Why has God put me in this kingdom? He loves you. It's overwhelming. Why does God love me? We keep going, don't we? Why? And when we ask that, we may want to know what it is about us that God loves. Like the couple that is dating. Tell me again why you love me. And a lot of times it's a pretty selfish question, right? We want to hear them tell us great things about us. Oh, that's right. I forgot. There's a lot. No wonder. God doesn't say that. That's not what God says. The second thing Paul says is that God's choice was according to the purpose of his will. He says something like that over and over again. Did you hear that in this sentence? Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will Verse 9, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, there is nothing outside of God, including you, that is influencing this decision. This is total, unconditional love. It is nothing in you. It is nothing in me. God is not seeking the counsel of angels or anyone else or another God. The counsel is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They counseled one another. And they had a purpose. And they carried out a will and then predestined, verse 11, that you and I would be saved. The second why question Paul answers, is in regards to purpose. What purpose? For what purpose did God choose us? Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. God chose to save us so that we would praise Him for His glorious grace. Of course, that's the same answer we've found in our previous sermons as we searched the scripture to ask what is the meaning of life and what is the key to lasting happiness and what was it other than to live. For the glory of God, to see it and to praise him for it and to be happy because of it. Why has God saved you? Why has God chosen to lavish his love on you? So that you would know his affections for you and praise him. So there we have the role of God the Father in our salvation. He planned it and predestined it. He appoints us to salvation. Election is from God the Father. Secondly, our salvation is purchased by God the Son. And here are verses 7 through 12, where our salvation is purchased by God the Son. In Him we have redemption, and that involves a purchase, which I'll describe in a minute. In Him we have redemption, and this Him is the beloved, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood. so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God had decided to save us. God the Father had planned to save us. But the problem is that we are sinners, deserving his judgment, not salvation. We are sinners deserving His condemnation. So how will this plan be carried out? How will we be saved? Through Christ alone. He has redeemed us. Not a word we use often. In this context, at this time, The word redemption was used regarding slaves. He has redeemed us, which means he has emancipated us from past slavery through the payment of a ransom price. Pay this price and the slave can be freed pay this price, and the slave can be ransomed free. And that would be redemption. This makes sense of other texts that we've read, like Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the ransom price that Christ paid was the giving of his life. Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ paid the price. He was the propitiation. He was the substitute sacrifice put forth by God the Father to be received by us through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus came, he lived, and then he suffered and died in the place of sinners so that sinners could be redeemed, could be reconciled to God. We are sinners when we are born condemned before God, deserving the just penalty of his eternal wrath, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is totally desperate. We can't be good enough. We're in the courtroom, and we're guilty before the judge awaiting the commencing of our sentence. And according to John 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the sacrificial ceremonies that you read of in the Old Testament during which the guilt of sinful people was symbolically imputed to an animal which served as a substitute, appeasing the wrath of God temporarily through its death. Well, Jesus came to be the ultimate lamb and die the final sacrifice And through the atonement, a sinless substitute, that is Jesus, was sacrificed in the place of sinful people so that God's wrath may be satisfied and repentant sinners like you and me may be forgiven. And that is the role of God the Son in our salvation. He pays for it. He purchases it. Redemption is from God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now third, moving along in this great sentence, our salvation is protected by God the Spirit here in verses 13 and 14. or our salvation is preserved by God the Spirit. Let's begin with verse 13, in which is hidden a work of the Holy Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Pause. If you are here and you're a Christian, then this happened to you, right? At some point, you heard the word of truth. Maybe you were older, maybe you were younger. Maybe you've heard the word of truth. If you've been so blessed, you've heard the word of truth as long as you can remember. Because your mom and dad were Christians before you were and they raised you telling you the truth. For many of you, that's not the case. You didn't grow up hearing truth. At some point, you heard the word of truth and you, verse 13, you believed in him. You heard the gospel of your salvation and you believed in him. And here you are today. And everything I've said so far in this sermon, you believe. You're not doubting it. You're not questioning it. You're not thinking about and going and weighing other options. You're completely and totally sold. You believe this gospel. The question is, how did you come to believe? Why did you believe? And the person next to you hearing the same message did not. So many people in history past and today hear this word of truth and they do not believe. So, what's the difference? Why is it that you believed this word of truth and someone else does not? And there's only two possibilities. Either you overcame your resistance to this truth or God overcame your resistance to this truth. And those are the only options. Well, friends, we've already looked at this. We are not able to overcome our sinful resistance to God in fact, later on in this book, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul will describe us before coming to Christ as dead in sin. Let me ask you a really basic question. What do dead people do? Nothing or stink. Stink. He doesn't describe us as being sick in sin but dead in sin. Other places were called deaf, cannot hear, blind, cannot see, heart of stone. Nothing gets through, nothing penetrates. Dead in our sin and so... In order to believe, since we are dead in sin, we must be made spiritually alive. We must be born again. We must be born of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5 1. Everyone who believes, is that you? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, not is then born of God. Everyone who believes has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot grab the life ring. He is not drowning. He is drowned. It is all of grace that God alone gets the glory. You were not smarter than the person next to you. You were not spiritual than the person next to you. You were not more open to truth than the person next to you. God, according to his sovereign choice and his love for you, Opened your eyes. He took your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh. He enabled you to understand things that are spiritually discerned. He revived you and made you alive. He caused you to be born again. And the first thing you did as one born again is you cried out in faith to him. Charles Spurgeon once winsomely expressed this truth. By saying this. Now, says one, I believe men can be saved if they will. My dear sir, that is not the question at all. The question is are men ever found naturally willing to submit to the humbling terms of the gospel of Christ? We declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved, and so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained towards Christ. You reply that men sometimes are willing without the help of the Holy Spirit. And I answer, did you ever meet with any person who was? Scores and hundreds, nay thousands of Christians have I conversed with, of different opinions, young and old, But it has never been my lot to meet with one who could affirm that he came to Christ of himself without being drawn. The universal question of all true believers is this. I know that unless Jesus Christ had sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, I would to this very hour have been wandering far from him at a distance from him and loving that distance well. With common consent, all believers affirm the truth that men will not come to Christ till the Father who hath sent Christ doth draw them. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He awakens us to what God the Father has done and what God the Son has done. And so by the Holy Spirit, our belief is enabled, which is why in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul will even call our faith a gift from God. But that's not all the Spirit does. Not only does He awaken us and enable us to believe, once we believe, He preserves and protects us. Verses 13 and 14. Those of us who have believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now once I came to understand that God had chosen me for salvation, my personally, my next concern was that at some point, God was going to unchoose me. That I would cross some line, that I would commit some sin for the 1500th time that I had confessed and asked forgiveness for a thousand times before, And God would say, enough. That he would enter into the relationship, but then at some point he would divorce me. That at some point he would call it off. So it's so good to know that when God gives us his Holy Spirit, whom he gives us to enable us to believe in the first place, that that Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal. Closed up, shut up, never to be opened again. That that Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal, and then aren't you moved by the word? a guarantee. My guarantees don't mean much. Ask my kids, my promises don't mean much. Things happen, things change, but a guarantee from God, a promise from the unchanging God John 10, 27 through 30 makes perfect sense now. Jesus says, my sheep, that's what he calls his beloved children, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. So I'm not putting them down and no one's getting them out. My father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. So finally there we have the role of God, the Spirit, in our salvation. He presents it to us irresistibly, then protects and preserves us. This is regeneration, and it is from the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, this entire passage is fuel. It's what it is. This entire passage is fuel. It is fuel for praising God. Over and over again in this long sentence, Paul reminds his readers of this. Verse 3, blessed be or praise be to God the Father. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So what are we to do with this text We're to do with this text exactly what Paul tells us to do with it. We praise God for his glorious grace. In our devotional life, when we read the Bible in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening and are reminded, we thank God and we praise God for his glorious grace in our private worship, in our public worship, whether you're at home or at work or in your car, wherever you are, and you're reminded of this truth, you're reminded of God's love for you, His no matter what love for you. You're reminded of what's truly important in life and you praise Him for His glorious grace. Or when you come here on a Sunday, it's what enables you to not just mouth the words to these songs, but to sing them with sincerity in your heart because of what we've just thought about, because this is true. In fellowship with your friends and with your family, this comes up, how good God is and how good he has been to us. It changes what we do, it changes how we think, it changes what we say to each other. And this is all what we do. We respond by giving praise to God's glorious grace. And now together today, we do that through communion. In this practical, physical, material, visible way. Here we stand up, we move our feet, we take bread in our hands, we take juice in our hands. Bread and juice that is a symbol to us of the body and blood of Jesus, reminding us that God had planned to save us, that he purchased the salvation through Jesus Christ, and in gratitude, and thanksgiving together as his body we remember and celebrate our great god and his great love for us so examine yourself today and think deeply about these things as paul called us to in 1 corinthians 11:28 let a person examine himself when they come to the lord's table and then eat of the bread of the cup. We'll have leaders up front who want to serve you today. If you're visiting, we ask that you would come forward and that you would take the bread and juice and then return to your seat and wait, and then we'll all take it together as a church family. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we are, well, many of us are, I'm sure, I am overwhelmed by your grace today. And there are so many points in these verses where we could have stopped for hours and thought about what we were being told and talked about what we were being told and and flipped through the Bible and read verse after verse after verse telling us the same thing in different and deeper ways. But God, we've moved through this passage, this sentence that you inspired Paul to write And here we are, God, overwhelmed by this truth. God the Father, what you have done to save us. God the Son, what you have done to save us. And God the Spirit, what you have done to save us. We are here as your adopted children, saved and sealed forever to give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name. Amen.